welcome to another fun, fun episode of Here's a Guy. I'm Alex, coming to you from St. Louis. I am joined by my two co-hosts, the first of which is my older brother, Cody, coming to us from Illinois. Cody, how are you? Um, I am not bad. Had a bit of an interesting uh, day yesterday at, uh, well, I, it was actually this morning before I found out about it because this happened after I went home, but, uh, one of our, uh, employees, there's this old, um, what we call the smoking section. There's a like plastic park bench table combo kind of thing, picnic table. And on it, there is an old coffee can in which people throw their cigarette butts. One thing about where I work, there's not a ton of employees, but like half of them smoke. It's like a, a ridiculous concentration. So at some point yesterday, um, the lady who works at the front desk, uh, accidentally, I guess, flicked an ash in the wrong direction, and the whole thing just caught fire, uh, which burned up to start with the coffee can and then melted a giant hole in that plastic table. <laughs> and uh, she and one of our other, uh, one of our intrepid news guys had to uh, put it out with a hose. So I was not there for the first hand of that, which is why it was really, really interesting when I walked up to the office this morning, because that sits right next to the door I walk into. So I, like everyone else I'm sure did that day, just walked in and went, the fuck? And then shrugged and just walked in. I, I love a workplace where something appears to be like completely like smoldering and melted, and they're just like, eh, it's work. I, I mean, I, seriously, that is my office. That place is my office, where you can see some just smoldering heap of wreckage. It's like, yeah, it must be a day that ends in Y. Something fucking weird happened here. There's a shocker. Smoldering wreckage, but enough about me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, normally I'm the only smoldering wreckage out back at that time of morning. Um, we're also joined by Jack John coming to us from Indianapolis. Jack John, what's going on with you? Um, Not too much. I'm just getting over being sick. Uh, my kid uh, had his first week at daycare last week, which means I have whatever the fuck all the other zero to four-year-olds have uh, yeah. in the area. So I'm, I'm <laughs> getting over that. Fucking probably. Uh, <laughs> I I knew he was going to get sick. I didn't know it would be sick instantly. Uh, so that that was a fun kind of like getting over that part. Oh, yeah. That is, uh, that is the least hygienic place on the world, in the world. Yeah. yeah. It, once you have kids, a kid or kids in daycare, just be prepared uh, to uh, come down with illnesses that you had uh, completely forgotten to worry about. <laughs> Cody, yeah. our family knows that quite well, don't we? Yes, yes, we do. I, do, we, my, do you want to say what uh, what all of our family came down with because uh, you and I caught it at daycare? It was uh, shit. What? Which one was it? It was hepatitis. Oh, it, it Jesus was the le- Christ! It was, it was the least bad one, but it was still hepatitis. Oh uh, fuck. I thought you were going to no. say, like, hand, foot, mouth or something. I've no. heard of that one, too. So, I actually have a really funny story about hand, foot, mouth. Um, I got it as an adult on accident. Uh, I, was at a, well, I, uh, like a tri- I, <laughs> I was at a float trip, and one of the people was an unknowing carrier. And um, I got my car stuck in, like, uh, like, a sandbar, and we had to, like, tow it out. And as a celebration, we all passed around a bottle of Crown and we're all taking pulls off the bottle. And then the dude was like, hey, uh, I feel weird, like an hour later. And then we um, accidentally made that camping trip a super spreader. 
a hand, foot, and mouth super spreader. That's pretty gnarly. Um, yeah, I, I don't know why I say this, but you do seem like a guy who would once accidentally catch hand, foot, and mouth disease as an adult. That's it, a Jack John thing to have happen to it, you. It's very on brand, honestly. Uh-huh. You know, I will say, though, for as much shit as the preschool kids uh, catch for this, college campuses are no better. I remember my senior year, I think we had a fucking mumps outbreak on campus because dumbasses didn't vaccinate their kids. Uh well, thankfully, everybody learned from it, and uh, that issue didn't go from a fringe ideology to a, a mainstream position. Thank mm-hmm. God for that. Yeah, thank God this isn't being fought about in Congress or anything like that. No. So we got a, we got a lot to discuss this week. Uh, not only do we have three guys as usual, but we have some matters to attend to up, up top. Um, and I suppose I'll go first. Um, I have an update on... Um, a previous, not a full topic, but a, a story that we had mentioned in an opening segment quite a while ago. Um, if you'll recall back in, I'm going to do the, the correct reading of this. If you recall back in uh, episode 51, now wait a minute! <laughs> <laughs> now wait a minute. The opening uh, segment of that show I dedicated to um, providing some updates to weird things going on in St. Louis, one of which was uh, now, former alderman Brandon Bosley uh, coming out to a place where a woman had been attempting to report to police and, and get them to come out and deal with this for weeks that she was pretty sure there was a dead body buried in her backyard. And when the cops just declined, uh, alderman Bosley came and dug it out himself. And sure enough, there was a dead body. Um, a very St. Louis story for just a whole host of reasons, unfortunately. I just uh, imagine being that alderman. Mm-hmm. Just there's a corpse, and like, <laughs> are you fucking kidding me? This is not what I thought this job was going to be. Also, like, how do you not immediately take to all of your social medias and rant about how these are the worst cops in the goddamn world? Uh, if your first like tweet after that isn't you want to see a dead body, then what the fuck are we do- living for? Like. <laughs> Just this lengthy rant about how bad the cops are and signs it with good job, Chief Wiggum. <laughs> the only way that, that the only way that story could get any more St. Louis is if like the corpse died with a bag of red hot riplets in his hand or something. <laughs> um, died died of choking on T Ravs, yeah. But speaking of Brandon Bosley and uh social media, um fast forward to December, right before Christmas. Brandon goes on his Facebook page and starts a Facebook Live video. Um, In the video, what we see is Brandon uh, pointing a gun at a woman on the ground, saying that he's going to blow her fucking head off. Um, He says that this woman had just tried to carjack him and that he's waiting till the police arrive, which they eventually do. Um, So so that was a whole thing, I think, a couple days before Christmas. I uh, I think we now know how he knew where to find that dead body. Uh, you could have given me a hundred options for where I thought that sentence was going to go, and I don't think I would have picked him. I, I was expecting, I was expecting something Tubin-esque. I no, I figured he was going to, you know, you know, be a um, elected official from New Jersey and just be like doing blow or something. No, well, this is St. Louis. The, I mean, pointing this, guns this at each other also... is kind of what we do. This is also something that elected officials in New Jersey do, though. It's fair, fair. 
like they, so they made a whole TV show about it in the late 90s. It was fantastic. St. Louis had a really gnarly rash of carjackings around the end of the year uh, in early 2023. Bosley received praise in some uh, corners as a hero for defending himself and for finally sticking up to the menace. But he was criticized by others for the way he handled it, uh, namely, uh, you know, going on Facebook Live and threatening <laughs> to blow the woman's head off. Um, I mean, it, the one- anytime, anytime you as a white man pull a gun on somebody else, there is a subsection of the American population that immediately pops a boner for you as soon as you do that. Like, that, will, you, will, are, you are a hero now. To that. I will add, in, in fairness, Brandon Bosley is not a white man, in fact. Um, oh. Still, though. Just, just for what it's worth. But still, you know, they'll, they'll make an exception for you in circumstances like that. Because the person he was, uh, who he pulled the gun on was also a black person. So. Oh, okay. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah, that, that completely null, nulls and voids the point, then. I don't know what it says about me, but I also assume Brandon was a white person. Because 99 out of 100 people named Brandon are white people. Well, and also, like, it's Missouri, and he's, like, an elected <laughs> official. So... Yeah. The woman, for what it's worth, was found to have a knife on her, but not a gun. Uh, She was arrested for robbery and held in jail until January 3rd, when suddenly her charges were dismissed. The public didn't find out why until February, when it was revealed the circuit attorney's office had uh, received gas station surveillance footage showing what had really happened um, was that Brandon Bosley actually ran the woman over with his car. (laughs) Fuck! What? So... Okay, I thought we'd hit the peak for that story. <laughs> I, I, no. Holy shit. Oh. Imagine so so just... that explains, I guess, why he immediately went on Facebook Live. I guess he was trying to create plausible deniability. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that is just such an unnecessary extra step. Like You could have just been like, yeah, this happened. I'm an elected official. You'll probably trust me. You don't... <sighs> So, uh, also in February, um, several other former aldermen in St. Louis were indicted on federal financial charges. Um, The filings implicate Bosley, among others, as people involved in taking bribes as well. Um, He hasn't been charged with anything out of that situation yet, but just this week he was indicted on wire fraud charges related to an entirely different scheme involving a car dealership. So, Brandon Bosley and uh, and, uh, an ongoing situation, an ongoing guy situation to watch, I would say. We've reached Are that we point. sure this isn't Jersey that this is happening <laughs> in? Because is, is he ripping off a, uh, a school in, uh, in uh, Mississippi while doing this? I want to know. <laughs> that, I mean, Allegedly. really, really all the, especially the first, you know, the situation with the financial charges with the alderman like that really warrants a deeper dive because it's just such a St. Louis situation. Like for for locals, like a lot of the the you know unsurprising big names, guys like Lewis Reed were involved. Um, not charged. Lacey Clay, um, former congressman, who actually a lot of this situation stemmed out of them trying to take down Cory Bush and being like <laughs> nakedly corrupt while doing so. Not charged. Lacey Clay sounds like a badass woman, like cowboy from the 1700s or something. <laughs> She's uh, Cody. What was the 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 badass frontier woman that you covered a while back? Oh, stagecoach Mary Fields. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not charged. Lacey Clay does sound like stagecoach Mary Fields' uh, uh, associate. You're correct. 
<clears throat> so anyway, that's what's going on here in good old St. Louis. Um, uh, anybody else have anything interesting happen to him this week? Uh, so, so I, I have an update, I guess, on okay. something ridiculous happening to me. Uh, if you guys will recall back in episode 77, an all new Toyota Corolla, um, I talked about Steve Lightfoot, the uh, man who has made it his entire life's uh, purpose to fully um, expose the uh, cover-up that is the murder of John Lennon uh, via Stephen King, the uh, writer, as well as Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Uh, and in that review, I talked about how I went to his website and I tried to buy his book. And uh, nothing happened, and I just assumed I'd been scammed out of ten bucks, and I was like, "Yeah, I deserve that." <laughs> On Tuesday, uh, as I'm pulling in to pick up my son from daycare, I get an email from Steve Lightfoot. It says, "Hi, John. Steve Lightfoot here. Just letting you know, I just found your order today. Sorry, I missed it. I will mail out your copy today. I appreciate your interest in this paramount issue of our time." Um. So, so I have that going for me right now. So Steve Lightfoot is personally mailing me um, what can only be um, the breakthrough this case needs. Yeah, I, I don't know if you hadn't said it or if I just forgot. I didn't know you were communicating directly with Steve Lightfoot. Like, I didn't uh, know your emails were going to Steve Lightfoot. It, you should have asked him to come on the show. So, so when, I, when I bought his book, uh, there was like just like a PayPal, like, hey, buy my book and i clicked it and 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 then just nothing happened and i got like a paypal receipt and i was like ah like, i'm not gonna i'm not gonna dispute 10 bucks like if you rip me off for 10 bucks like i lost 10 bucks and i thought That's nothing of it. but this is an email personally to me from steve lightfoot with his actual email so i have that now uh and he has mine though so this is this is a very double-edged sword yeah i was gonna say you're you're, you might want to start sp uh, sending his stuff to spam before too long, because uh, I, it is entirely possible that your inbox is filled with uh, John Lennon conspiracy theories daily. I, I also probably need to start being more neutral on my opinions, as he also has my address. Ruh-roh. <laughs> so, so hey, he, 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 wouldn't, he wouldn't hurt you. Who do you think he is? Stephen King? Ah, there we go. Uh, and 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 to be fair to him, which I I don't think I would say otherwise, he's got some of the pieces there where I think I think I think you know, you know Reagan and Nixon, not great people. I'll agree with him there. I have questions everywhere else. Well, that's very exciting. Keep an eye on the mail, Jack, as uh, as we gr eagerly anticipate uh, what will be surely a thrilling live reveal of yeah. what Steve could possibly be sending you in the mail. And, and just, check, make sure uh, check not, just make sure it's not ticking before you open it, please. <laughs> it's a weird powder in the bottom of this uh, package. No, and uh, check check the uh, the Instagram and the Twitter account. Here's the guy pod. Uh, I will have a ton of information uh, on those when we when we get it. Just based on what I know about Steve Lightfoot, if there's a powder in the bottom of that package, put it in a baggie and see how much you can get for it. Because <laughs> that would explain a lot. <clears throat> Well, exciting stuff. Exciting times here at Here's a Guy. Um, but as fun as that all is, that's not why we're here. We are here to talk about some guys. Uh, Jack John, could you help me out, please? Uh, yeah, I think I remember it. It's uh, the guys. 
All right, and uh, since you're all warmed up, Jack John, I believe you're up first this week. Who's your guy? Yeah, so uh, before I get into my story, I have to give some context as to why I'm doing it. Uh, oftentimes on this show, we talk about finally getting to cover guys that have been on our list for a very long time. This is not one of those times. I learned about my guy three days ago. How, uh, you might ask? Well, if you'll believe me on this story, it came from a dream. Yeah, I don't believe you. <laughs> See, I have very vivid dreams when I'm stressed, and I stress dream a lot. Uh, and during a particularly rough night of parenting, I had a here's a guy dream. Um, in my dream, I was presenting uh -oh. on a topic that had a very unique twist. We were all naked. <laughs> Cody, Cody was hanging massive dong. <laughs> but I woke up in the middle of this dream. I want no dream, buddy. I woke up in the middle of the dream in a panic, thinking I had heard the baby monitor next to me. Uh, baby Jack John was fine, and I laid back down. But before I did, I wrote four words that described my dream. I woke up the next morning and Googled those words, and somehow there was a story behind them. <laughs> my guy this week is uh, Monsieur de Grand Prix and the hot air balloon fight. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ill-advised Ill aviation is becoming... One of our big go-to recurring themes, like yeah. we, I guess we have another one this week. There's going to be several more to come later, um, but this is one. Thought? And I'm usually the so much there. I'm usually the ill-advised aviation guy, um, but I've never heard of this, so I'm really excited to find out what this could possibly be. It, it literally like, in my phone, like I have a notes app, and it was like half misspelled because I was half awake, but it's the hot air balloon fight. Um, and I Googled it the next morning, and fucking yeah, there's a story here. <laughs> then you got to try and remember, okay, is this something I meant to look up, or is this the name of that <laughs> pop-punk band I want to start? <laughs> Honestly, I could see Hot Air Balloon Fight opening for, you know, any pop-punk band. Mm -hmm. uh, but this story takes us back to Paris, France in 1808. France in the early 1800s is a wild place, to say the least. Uh, Napoleon is trying to fight everyone. Most notably, France's neighbors in Spain, Portugal, and England. Uh, the Peninsular War is just picking up in 1808 and quickly leading to the collapse of the First French Empire. Napoleon, the Giuseppe Zangara of dictators. <laughs> mm -hmm. Let me at them! Let me at them! <laughs> uh, it's chaotic in all the worst ways for everyday Frenchmen, and maybe that was the catalyst for our story. We don't have much to tell about uh, Monsieur de Grand Prix and his life before the incident. He wasn't high nobility, so there's no record of his life in any fantastical settings. And he wasn't a war hero, paving his story through legends uh, told by others. He's one of my yeah, favorite I, I, things I, on I, this. I'm also not high nobility. I'm just high. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. uh, but he's one of my favorite types of guys on this show. Just a guy. There's nothing that makes him special except for this instance. Grand Prix was at least in some social standing, though, in Paris, as he managed to attract a high-profile lover. Her name was Mademoiselle Trivet, and an incredibly talented uh, and much-respected dancer in her own right. She performed at the Paris Opera to great fanfare, and as such, found herself to be the desire of many men, even outside of Grand Prix. In May of 1808, Mademoiselle Trivet had kept... Uh, uh, Grand Prix, but also she happened to also um, be keeping someone else on the side as well. 
Her little side fling was a man by the name of Monsieur Lepique. And Lepique was very similar to Grand Prix in a few ways. Uh, those, way, those ways being completely indistinguishable as we have no real information on either of them. <laughs> He's simply I thought you were going to say uh, I thought you were going to say he was a uh, French-speaking skunk. <laughs> uh, oh, that was uh, Mr. LePew, sorry. I think Le he's Pete. been canceled. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not he the best. Uh, uh, but this menage uh, day one too many people sparked a clear controversy as both men had laid claim to Trevette's heart. And Trevette, either not allowed to or by choice, didn't have a say in this matter, as many women did in the 1800s. Well, we could... We we could ask her which of us uh, which of us she prefers. Nah, <laughs> that'd be silly. Anyway, uh, I'm gonna kill you now. The men were at an impasse and knew there was only one way to settle this ordeal: a classic gentleman's duel. But for some unknown for some unknown reason, the gentlemen decided to literally raise the stakes and challenge one another to a duel, each in their own handmade balloons. Okay. Hot air balloon fight. I, so, Man. so one of two things happened. Either these guys both just had handmade balloons, or whoever was making the challenge was like, um, whoever got to choose the venue and weapons was like, uh, okay. What could I say that's so insane that this guy will not accept under any circumstances? And then he just painted himself into a corner with that. (laughs) Yeah. The guy was just as crazy and was like, fuck yeah, let's do it. I just think (laughs) it it must be so crazy to be like a hot babe. Like you can just get guys to do shit like this anytime Uh, you want. Basically, like I like because I've, you know, I can understand that thought. Like it would be it would be really cool to like have have two guys dual hot air balloons. I'd like to see what happens. I can't make that happen. <laughs> but a a yeah. hot rich babe definitely can. Yeah, you you absolutely cannot make that happen if you are not one of the participants. Like that that's the that's the best case scenario is in order to make that happen you have to put yourself in harm's way. Uh the duel would be set for 1 month out in June to decide the fate of not only the men, but also their lover, Trevette. So they have to make their own balloon from this. Like, it's, it's like, hey, go make a balloon, and in a month we're going to meet up. It's like a combination dual soapbox derby. <laughs> it really is. It really is. Uh, but the men gathered one month later just outside a field near the Tuileries Garden in Paris, each with their own balloon. The balloons inflated with gas were set up, and ground rules were to be agreed upon. Both men had their think, seconds. Uh, do you think when they got up there, they started making the vroom vroom noises with their mouths? <laughs> I would have. Yeah. I, I, how many times are you gonna get to do this? As they're as they're ascending, they're just doing like their own elevator music. <laughs> uh, but both men had their seconds with them. Uh, and if you don't know, that's a man to negotiate either an amicable truce or the manner in which the duel is going to take place. Um, no peace was to be had, though. Um, and to them, the ultimate prize of love was worth dying for, literally. 
I, how, how do you back out of this? <laughs> like, you have gone far enough to make a hot air balloon and commit to dueling another guy in these hot air balloons. Yeah. I, I, you gotta go through with it at that point. Like, you're, you're too far gone. Yeah. If only to know how it ends. I, I don't want to be... I don't want to be a hypocrite because I we did criticize uh, Lawn Chair Larry for for you know the opposite reason, but ultimately I think you're right. I mean, you know, if you, do you want to win over this lady or not? At that point, okay. I think the lady is secondary. I think <laughs> when I'm making that decision to get in that balloon or not, I'm going look. I made a hot air balloon, and I spent the last two weeks or however long preparing myself to fight a duel in a hot air balloon. How can I just not do it now? Like, that's... That, that is so much wasted mental energy. It's a matter of pride. Logistical issue, I see. Like, let's just say you win this thing. Let's say you, you win over the girl. How... How are you going to eventually propose to this gal in a way that impresses her? <laughs> when your first date is destroying another guy in a hot air balloon. I mean, how do you possibly top yourself? The Growing Alan Rickman off of uh, the tower at Nakatomi Plaza. <laughs> it's the only way you can do it. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot to mention, the, uh, the Frenchmen uh, uh, have no shoes on uh, as it helps them stay grounded after they get off the plane. <laughs> okay. One more diehard. Uh, but the ground rules were as follows. At 9 a.m., the cords of the balloons would be cut and lifted. The two balloons would keep an approximate close distance, no more than 80 yards apart before drawing closer. They didn't want to necessarily hit in air, but they wanted to keep pretty close. Once the men were about 800 meters into the air, a signal would be shown and the men would fire. Now, Dueling is something that sometimes were pageantry and marksmanship, and even the best shot would have a great issue at such a distance. This was planned for, though. Instead of traditional dueling pistols, the men came bearing blunderbuss, which uh, can be compared basically <laughs> to a shotgun today. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big fucking... That's an elephant gun, practically, yeah. And also... You don't really... Do you have to hit the other guy, really? Or do you just have to blow a big enough hole in his balloon? I'm glad you asked that. Uh, and instead of aiming for the individual, the men chose for the more broad approach and aimed for each other's balloons. Blunderbuss, by the way, one of the all-time great words, and one of the all-time great words yeah. that sounds exactly like what it is and what it does. Mm -hmm. they, they, they hit the nail on the head when they called that thing the blunderbuss. Yeah. Blunderbuss sounds like a drunk county sheriff in the 1800s. <laughs> we got old Hal Blunderbuss in office. He ain't done shit in 20-some-odd 20, 20 year. Blunderbuss is the only transport that leaves the casino after 3 a.m. <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> oh. I don't like that. <laughs> that sucks to think about. Yeah. As the men readied their balloons and equipment, a crowd began to gather. And, you know what? There's two balloons in a park. Surely this is setting up to be the start of a balloon race, they thought. Nope, it's a dick <laughs> measuring contest, 800 meters in the air, and someone's gonna die. It's a, yeah, yeah, balloon race. Balloon it's, race. A, it's, a, it's a reverse balloon race. Yeah. These guys are racing to the ground. 
<laughs> and and as we've covered in like previous topics, like the uh, the famous train crash that I covered at um, uh, Crash Texas, like people will show up if you promise them carnage. So yeah, I get it. Nine a.m. came, and the men took flight, each with their seconds in tow in the balloon with them. Oh, that's a dedicated second. (laughs) Yeah, bold, bold move. They reached the correct altitude for murder, and it was time. Lapique took the first shot almost instantly. Overexcited or just having really shitty aim with a shotgun, Lapique misses horribly, managing to miss both the men in the basket and the balloon entirely. Grand Prix would return fire with his blunderbuss and with one shot, struck the balloon. Piercing through the material with ease created multiple holes, and like a ship taking on too much water, the balloon began to plummet immediately and with great velocity. So, do you think that when the balloon gets hit, he just hangs in the air for a second before dropping... And there's the, you hear taps playing in the background and he takes his hat off and just looks very sadly at the camera before he starts falling. It was also stated in the rules that you had to have a tiny uh, wooden sign that said something comical as you were to fall. (laughs) I mean, hell, I would have, even if it wasn't in the rules. Like, if I'm going to go out like this, I'm going to make the most of it. Waving like a little white handkerchief as like your whole body falls before the handkerchief does. <laughs> Can I have a comically small parachute, please? <laughs> or or more uh more accurately, a parachute that is packed with an anvil. Uh best I can give you is originally a pool of water that's replaced with a glass of water. <laughs> God, I love Looney Tunes. Uh, but yep. Lepique and his second fell to the earth and managed to find a soft landing. Uh, that, soft, that soft landing just happened to be a nearby house. Oh, all right. <laughs> I'm, you brought me back in it. This is, the most, this is the most entertaining rendition of Cyrano I've ever seen. Again, I can s- literally see it happening. The family is in the, in the kitchen eating dinner, and they crash through the roof and land in the two empty chairs at the dinner table. Like, I have seen this in a cartoon before. All of it. Well, maybe I shouldn't have said soft landing, as this would spell the end for Lepique. As the newspapers recounting the event stated, Lepique and his second were dashed to pieces. Hate to be dashed to pieces. Almost as bad as being torn asunder. (laughs) As for Grand Prix... Since he was up in the air already, he figured he'd go for a little ride in his balloon as a victory lap, and floated a few kilometers uh, before landing safely, claiming his prize. Uh, this he... guy did a fucking touchdown dance after this. Did a fucking victory <laughs> lap. <laughs> Just holding up both middle fingers. <laughs> mooning the crowd. <laughs> Now, this is an absolutely incredible tale of finding your love to, uh, to be in jeopardy, risking all, and walking away the victor. The story seemingly too good to be true. Some might even go as far to call the story untrue, or complete bullshit. See, this story in question has a rather curious origin. 
I mentioned that the story came from a newspaper from the time, and that is true. The story is outlined in print in the Northampton uh, Mercury, dated July 23rd, 1808, a full month after the duel took place. This publication, though, was an English one, uh, and actually ran from 1720 all the way to 2015. It was founded by a man named William Dicey, and despite the creator's name, seemed to have a decent reputation in publishing. Are you sure you didn't have a Dicey reputation? I mean, are you kidding me? William Dicey? Yeah. Yeah. The Dicey family uh, started this newspaper. That William Dicey is 100% a front man for a loan sharking operation. <laughs> um, but it's interesting that this is the only print from the event, uh, and it comes from an English paper, despite the manner taking place in France and also during a very tumultuous time between the two countries. The story was also referenced once more, uh, although in a book, The Book of Days, a miscellany of popular antiquities in connection with a calendar, a pseudo-farmer's almanac meets trivia of a day calendar. Uh, but this here's book a guy, Bible. Honestly. Uh, but this book was published in 1864, nearly 60 years after the event. So to this point, the only two credible sources are seemingly retellings, and at best, second- or third-hand retellings of the entire event. To add a little bit more doubt into the legitimacy of this story, it appears there may have been some tricky wordplay happening underneath it all. Mademoiselle Trevette is the first of the curious names. There's no record of her existing, uh, for one, despite the claims that she was a famous dancer in Paris. Mm -hmm. A closer look at her name also appears to be a play on Rue Terre Poutaine, uh, or as some uh, histories have guessed uh, it would be. Uh, and what is this strain exactly? Uh, well, uh, by decree of Louis IX in 1269, this was one of the streets designated to allow sex work. Oh, I see. It's a place for... I got a joke, and it's pretty good, but I think it's offensive. <laughs> so I'm actually just going to leave it go. But if if you out there can think of what <laughs> joke I want to make, send it to us at here's a mailbox at gmail.com. And we won't read it on air. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll read it uh, to ourselves and chuckle. The names of both men uh, draw some skepticism as well. Rough translation of Grand Prix becomes Mr. Grand Prize. And right. Depeak, yeah, Depeak I knew that. Being, Depeak being very similar to Pike. So the entire story becomes a big-ass joke as Mr. Grand Prize went to sex worker after spearing Mr. Pike's balloon. Or at least that's I'm gonna one theory I'm going to get angry in a minute, story. aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> that's at least one theory. Uh, sadly, we'll never know the full truth, and as such, the story falls into a category of stories that have holes in them, but overall are so old and inconsequential that who gives a shit, really? Um, but that is the story... <laughs> of the hot air balloon fight that I dreamed that actually is real, which leads me all to my maybe. big question. <laughs> yeah, maybe all of this is a dream, and I'm going to wake up soon anyway. Uh, this leads me to my big question. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done to impress a girl? Um, Alex, you want to go first? You want me to? I can go first. I can think of... Um... <laughs> Probably one was when, um, like, late high school, um, I went to a girl's, like, youth group meeting with her 
that I like definitely wasn't obligated to go to. I just did anyway because I thought it would impress her. Um, and just never again. That's all I'm gonna say. Yeah. Very strange night. Oh, the same girl. Well, you're 30 I, I just, years old, so I hope not. <laughs> the same girl. I just remembered uh, um, a, another instance um, where really I think this was less a dumb thing I did to impress a girl, but more like an extremely inconsiderate to somebody else thing. Which was a she worked in a movie theater in a nearby town, um, like at the the front desk, um, and we'd been like chatting on MySpace for a bit, and so Ooh. I really wanted to you know go chat up this girl in person. Um, but this is like a family movie theater. And I really didn't feel like just going to a movie by myself for this purpose. Um, so I, I talked to my best friend, Logan, who at the time I would guess measured probably like six, three or six, four, like 380 pounds, big red beard. Um, just a, a big burly man. Um, and I asked him like, dude, I'm trying to impress this girl. Can you just go to this movie with me? And and Logan being the great wingman that he was, he he says, of course. Um and we go and we 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 watch How to Train Your Dragon, because that's what was playing. Um, uh, which is a decent kids movie. Yeah. But at movie. a certain point in the movie, um, like the this movie theater, I don't know if it's still this way, uh, but it was like it was real old school back then. It only had two screens. It always showed something like at least vaguely family friendly, but for five bucks, you got a ticket to the movie and popcorn and a drink. An almost unheard of deal these days. Yeah. Um, so we go up there and we're watching the movie. Um, we're, uh, you know, eating our popcorn, eating our drink. And I, I at a certain point say like, hey, I'm going to get us some refills. This is my excuse to go talk to this girl. And we had, or I head back downstairs to get the refills. And I do start, you know, flirting with, with this girl that I'm interested in. And I guess I lose track of time because I turn around eventually to see... Coming down the stairs from the upstairs screen, a large group of children, and then my my large burly friend <laughs> Logan looking very pissed. <laughs> so, um, I I abandoned my friend at a screening of How to Train Your Dragon with only other children and parents uh, to impress a girl. That's my story. I love it. Yeah. Um. So I was wrecking my. I don't really have too many of these because I was one of those people that recognized at a fairly young age that trying to impress people is extremely lame. Um, I, I always was kind of disdainful of that. I will say probably the dumbest thing I ever did in kind of a similar scenario, I was at um, one of our bars here in town. I've talked about Don's place a couple years ago. This is probably five, six years ago. And here's this girl I was talking to at the bar and we at some point did a lunchbox, which is, we've talked about before, it's the half beer, half orange juice with a shot of amaretto that you chug. So I did one, and she's like, holy shit, that is crazy fast. I am very good at chugging lunchboxes. So, comes with practice. Um, so I yeah. uh, took that as like, oh, I'm impressed by that. So, oh, no. she calls two of her friends over that she was there with, and she's like, guys, you got to see this. I was like, you got to see what? She's like, well, can you, can you do that again? And I was like, I just slammed a whole beer here, kid. Like, I don't know if you know how to... Fuck it, fine. All right. So I do it again. And by that point, like, I can feel the, the gas expanding in my esophagus. And the other two girls were also suitably wowed. 
And then one of them's like, oh my god, I gotta show this to Mike, and grabs her boyfriend from off the wall <laughs> to come over. It's like, can you just do one more? And I'm like, alright. So I do one more. And at that point, I realize I've painted myself into a corner, because I can't keep standing here. <laughs> so I walk out back and just unleash the loudest burp, loudest, longest burp I have ever had in my entire life. I so go ahead. Yeah, so that's that's about the closest I've ever gotten to really doing something extraordinarily stupid. And this all this all was within about fifteen minutes. Oh God! Like I love a good lunchbox. They're one of my favorite like things about like being back in Jacksonville that like makes me happy. Uh, but counting three of them quickly, um, I was picturing that this was going to end like uh, classic South Park where Stan is talking to Wendy and just like projectile vomit directly in her face. <laughs> no, if I if I had even like had an inkling that that was going to happen, I would have declined uh, at least the third <laughs> one. So. Yeah, it, it all like. All the all the liquid went where it was supposed to go, but all of that, all of those bubbles just stayed right, just right in my chest here. Great answer. Felt like I swallowed a fucking bowling ball. Oh, that's very uh, opportune words. As uh, for me, um, it's it's more embarrassing to me in retrospect, and it probably should have been more embarrassing to me uh, during it. But um, back when I was dating. And I didn't do this with my current wife, and that's probably why it stuck. Um, but what I would do as a first date uh, is I would take a girl bowling. Um, and if you don't know, this is the nerdiest shit I'll probably ever say. I was a varsity bowler in high school, and I lettered all four years, and that's how I got letters, uh, was bowling. Um, <laughs> and I would bring all of my bowling equipment on the first date. Um, I'd bring four bowling balls, my bowling shoes my little rosin bag, all of it. Uh, and I thought being really good at bowling was the way to impress girls. And I would kick them. I mean, ass. that's, that's, that's not the worst. Like it could have been like basketball or something where you're just like <laughs> totally flexing. It, like not as bad, but like in retrospect, like not far off, honestly. I mean, did you at least handle it right where you weren't a dick about how much, how badly you were beating her? Or did you, or did you, did you stun a little bit? I, I didn't, I didn't go like full Pete Weber, but like, I, I probably was like, oh yeah, was just, I'm, I'm just that good. Yeah. Like I was probably an absolute piece of shit about it. <laughs> it was now the I'm world's least humble, uh, humble brag. Now I'm just wondering how the, the famous Pete Weber line would work uh, in the bedroom. <laughs> I won't be trying it, but if anybody else out there wants to give it a shot and let us know, here's a mailbox at gmail.com. I feel like she'd be like, are you having a stroke right now? <laughs> Depends on if they get the reference or not. I mean, it's going to, it's going to, it's going to ruin the whole thing either way. It's just, it's just a matter uh, of how it's going to ruin it. You, I feel you like only, it goes better if she doesn't. Uh, the only, the only way the Pete Weber line works is if, uh, if sex doesn't end up happening and you just have to go alone uh, by yourself for a while. <laughs> I know who I am. I'm fucking me. <laughs> okay, thank you for that, Jack John. And uh, for our second guy of the episode, we turn to Cody. Cody, who's your guy? So 
This is one that uh, I was inspired to do. He's been on the list for a while, but I was inspired to do this because it is the 30th anniversary of one of our favorite movies of all time, Jurassic Park. Yep. We have I saw that. talked about it many, many times about how we are just massive dinosaur nerds, you and I. And uh, Jurassic Park is a good part of the reason why. I've so you've done a dinosaur guy here recently. Go ahead, Jack. I feel, I feel like any boy who was at any age during the 90s, whether they wanted to or not, was like heavily introduced to dinosaurs. Like, like my son hasn't even had thoughts yet. He already has three dinosaur onesies. Like, I feel like it's just like a thing. Like, boys get trucks, dinosaurs, and like other third thing pushed on them like before they even realize <laughs> it. Yeah, Sarah's nephew, who's uh, who's very small, he's already a huge dinosaur nerd. Proud of him. Hell yeah. So we're talking about John Ostrom here tonight. John Ostrom, one of the, dare I say, the most important paleontologist in the history of the discipline. So John hails from Schenectady, New York. Uh, he was born in 1928. Now, initially, his plan was to be a medical doctor like his father. But during undergrad, he read some material on evolution that just absolutely fascinated him, and he switched his major over to geology. He then went to grad school at Columbia, earning a PhD in 1960, and after taking a little time off to get married and start a family, he set about his life's ambition, studying dinosaurs. So in 1961, he takes a position as a professor at Yale, uh, teaching rich inbred blue bloods how the anatomy of these mysterious ancient lizards actually worked. Ostrom was do you, quick, do you, uh, quick. Do you really want to be? Do you really want to be telling that crowd too much about biology, or do you just want to leave, leave them blissfully unaware? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's teaching people like George and Jeb Bush. Ugh. Ugh. So Ostrom was quickly recognized as one of the brightest young minds in the discipline, and started uh, leading his own expeditions to Utah and Montana, where dinosaur fossils are historically pretty numerous. Um, a lot of the American dinosaur fossils that we have found have come from those two states in that particular area of the country. Mm -hmm. It's often posited that Ostrom was a significant inspiration for Alan Grant, the lead character in Jurassic Park. John Ostrom justified his reputation with multiple key discoveries. So Ostrom, one of his talents was he had a knack for uh, looking at the big picture and recognizing that small details a lot of times had bearing on the, the discipline as a whole. <clears throat> the implications weren't lost on him as they were on some other people. Um, his first big breakthrough concerned perhaps an Unexpected subject, the humble hadrosaur. The hadrosaur was a dinosaur that was not talked about much outside of the academic community because, frankly, to the average person, they aren't terribly interesting. Yeah, um, it's like the hadrosaur, it's more like a, an iguanodon type thing, right? Right. So the hadrosaur was a medium-sized herbivore whose uh, distinguishing characteristic was a duck-like bill. I personally think that the name for this uh, should have been the Dorcasaurus, because when you, you hear a little more about this thing, like they were apparently slow and kind of gangly and had this big duck bill. 
I just imagine them getting shoved into lockers by all the cooler dinosaurs <laughs> all day. Like, yeah, if you're they really if you're were watching kind of the nerds of the dinosaur world. If you're watching a dinosaur special like Walking with Dinosaurs and uh, they they put a focus on one of these things, like guarantee a predator is going to be showing up pretty <laughs> soon. Yeah. You ever seen a dinosaur get a wedgie? Stay tuned. <laughs> the possums of the dinosaur world. They just exist to get eaten by other things. So, again, it's the duck bill that makes this thing really interesting at all. And the purpose of this bill was something that nobody could really seem to explain. Now, this is by the point where evolution is accepted as a scientific fact. So every physical characteristic, people were trying to figure out, okay, well, why? What's this for? Is there a reason for this, or is this just something that hasn't evolved out of them yet? So what Ostrom recognized was that the layout of this bill probably gave them a very keen sense of smell, which they would have evolved as a defense mechanism that allowed them to smell larger predators from far away, as, like I said, the Hadrosaur was not very fast, it didn't have any, like, protective armor plating on its body, it was just, it was like the cow of the dinosaur world. Just, just a nice snack for whatever happened to be running past. Uh, hey, hey guys, I've, I've noticed we, we just get murdered a fuckload. What if, what if we just tried smelling everyone? Maybe, maybe we'll live longer. <laughs> And thus, nature takes its course. I can't do David Attenborough, or I would have right there. But, uh... <laughs> Furthermore, he theorized that because of this and some other observations he'd made, the hadrosaur was probably not native to swampy tropical climates like they previously thought, but a more terrestrial climate. Kind of like a, a contemporary temperate zone like we all live in. So this was borne out by a paper that Ostrom dug up from 1922, uh, that listed the stomach contents of a mummified hadrosaur. There were fruits, nuts, conifers, things like that, things that you would find in a more terrestrial climate. So these discoveries made Ostrom a rock star in the world of paleontology, which is something I think we all would like to be, but alas... Yeah, I, say, I, I, I always talk about all the poontang that the top yeah. geologists must get. <laughs> yeah. Like, the top archaeologist, I mean, he's got to be... He's just got to be swatting it away. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm, ter I'm terrified because an archaeologist who's getting a big head can go one of two ways. Either he becomes a complete massive raging asshole um, and he destroys his life, or he starts uh, robbing uh, natives of their uh, artifacts and giving it to museums. <laughs> or becomes Indiana Jones. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was the um, second part. Yeah. So these discoveries, uh, again, big, big deal in the world of paleontology. Ostrom didn't really give a shit about his status, though. Like, Ostrom was a real dinosaur guy. He was all in about learning as much as he could, and he wasn't really interested in the accolades. He's there for the music, man. Yeah, seriously. He was, yeah, he was the Sid Barrett of the paleontology world which is a reference maybe two of our listeners will get, but those that do will uh, appreciate it quite a bit. So besides, as these discoveries came to light, Ostrom, again, put his kind of unique talent for extrapolating to use and realized that this research on the Hadrosaur doesn't just have implications for what we know about the Hadrosaur. 
there are actually massive implications for what we know about dinosaurs, period. So, hadrosaurs were, as previously determined, upright animals that Ostrom had uh, pretty well proven came from terrestrial climates. So what that means is that they would need a lot of energy to function at their size, especially walking on two legs. Uh, to say nothing of one of their main predators, the mighty Tyrannosaurus rex. If a huge animal like the T-Rex had the strength and energy to move around upright in a terrestrial environment all day, it was almost unfathomable that they could be cold-blooded. Dinosaurs at this point were thought of as giant lizards, and like other reptiles, it was assumed that they were cold-blooded, because that's just how most reptiles are. This hypothesis was one of the reasons people thought that dinosaurs could only live in swampy, tropical, or otherwise very warm climates, and thus that much of the Earth was that way for a good portion of its history. Ostrom realized that our perception of ancient Earth as mostly tropical and dinosaurs as cold-blooded were likely both wrong. As a matter of fact, based on the way they moved and the type of metabolism they would need to function, dinosaur dinosaurs were, in fact, more reminiscent of birds than lizards. Mm -hmm. That's something that we all know now. Yeah, That's where this came from. I, I feel like the first time, though, that you think of a dinosaur with feathers, it, like, fucks with you for, like, a week. Like he, the first yeah, time it I does. Thought, it, was like, it, it messed me up for a bit. It's like a chicken with teeth. Yeah, it just... <laughs> Something about it's just wrong. So this theory was borne out when hadrosaur bones were found above the Cana uh, Canadian Arctic Circle, which even at the time would have been much too cold for a, a cold-blooded reptile like the hadrosaur to survive, and resolved some key unexplained contradictions in existing dinosaur physiology. Massive, massive discovery. Changed the face of the entire discipline. Ostrom was also the first to discover the species Deinonychus. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Deinonychus, but this thing is fucking gnarly. Um, I, I believe I remember this one, yeah. Yeah. The Deinonychus was a particularly nasty predator that killed its prey by leaping and slashing with a wicked claw on its foot, very similar to how Jurassic Park uh, portrayed the Velociraptor. His study of their anatomy provided even more evidence that dinosaurs were much more active animals than previously thought, and thus almost would have to be warm-blooded. All of this added up to Ostrom being correct about his dinosaur-bird connection theory. That is accepted science now. All of these discoveries kicked off what was known as, and I love that I get to use this phrase, the dinosaur renaissance. Fuck yeah. That is a phrase almost too nerdy to even say out loud, but I don't care. Absolutely <laughs> love it. So this period of renewed interest in dinosaurs from the academic community would eventually bleed over into pop culture. It also changed theories about literally every aspect of dinosaurs and how they function. But for the layperson, it became much more common to see dinosaurs in the media. There's... The Godzilla franchise, clearly based on a dinosaur. The Flintstones, Barney, The Land Before Time. And of course, 
Michael Crichton's novel and eventual blockbuster movie adaptation, Jurassic Park. Dino fever has died down to an extent, but theories on dinosaurs continue to advance. Contemporary debates continue about whether they had feathers, what they ate, and whether a rack of brontosaurus ribs would actually tip over a car. John Ostrom did get to enjoy this for the most part. He passed away in 2005. But he's the reason that we continue talking about dinosaurs the way that we do and the amount that we do. So for that, we salute you. And him dying in 2005 means he never had to see uh, Chris Pratt try to lull a dinosaur. So that's <laughs> yeah, good. That's for a him. very good point. It's a very good point. Um, yeah. Even God, even Dominion, where they brought everybody back, even that thing was just a steaming pile of shit. Um, so let's have us a little dino debate of our own. For my big question, it's very simple. What's your favorite dinosaur? Hmm. This is really hard. Um, there were, God, there were so many. As a kid, though, I never really thought much about what's my favorite one. I mean, the raptors were cool. Um, but they got a little played out. Um, at what point, I kind of liked the Allosaurus because it's like a lesser T-Rex, but also like, you know, right. it's Al, I'm Al, you know, mm, one of those yeah. things. I, if I can call it that, like, yeah. I kind of liked the Therizinosaurus. It has like these fucking huge claws, but like it's not, the use of the claws is kind of boring. But So ultimately when I think about it, I think my answer has to be the Ankylosaurus. Um, oh yeah, I love those things. Built, built like a fucking tank, low to the ground, covered in armor and spikes, and with a big ball, basically oh, a, yeah. a fucking club at the end of its tail. Just an absolute it's got a mace on its tail. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not always as thrilling when a creature is specialized around defense, but to see a creature perfect the art quite like the Ankylosaurus, to essentially become completely indestructible, um, is really something. So that's that's my final answer there. Um, for me, if you had asked me at any age before 14, it would have been, it'd have been any sort of raptor. Uh, as a kid, I, I love the raptors. Uh, as an adult, and this is he's a big, probably... he's a big Kyle Lowry fan. Yeah. <laughs> look, I mean, look, Toronto's got a great shot next year. No, um, but <laughs> no one's ever as an that. adult, and this is, this is mostly probably based on what Jurassic Park showed me and then me researching it later in life. Uh, but the uh, Dilophosaurus, um, yes, spitting dinosaur, yeah, mostly based it's the thing on that killed just, Newman, yeah, yeah, so how it killed Newman, and also the fact that when you actually learn about them, they're fucking 10 feet tall, yeah, like, holy, they're fuck. fucking units. Like, what, what as an adult, when I've learned what scale of dinosaurs actually is, I've started to love more and more of them. Like, when it's, you learn, like, yeah, the last raptors are like seven feet tall or some shit, like. I get a whole new appreciation, but the acid spinning, uh, like winged, frilled face dinosaur has always had my heart. Yeah, we we like so, everyone. I think understands that dinosaurs are big, but like to learn exactly how big we are, yeah. like the ankylosaurus I was just talking about. Like, not only is it the fucking defense machine, but it's like pretty much the size of an elephant. It's crazy, I, crazy how big these things were. I think for me, as like a kid, and even as like a teenager. Scale was always lost on me because I feel like dinosaurs were always measured like tail to nose. And you mm -hmm. kind of like 
length is like covered, but you forget kind of how tall that still is. Well, yeah, especially for the upright ones. Yeah. So for for my money, this was a tough one. And I'm not gonna lie, Dilophosaurus was up there for me, but I am gonna go with the Stegosaurus. Oh. Because I mean not only does I, I always thought that row of spikes on its back were really neat. I couldn't tell you why exactly they were there, but I, I just thought it was cool. And also the spikes on the tail. And the reason that gives me such a thrill is because, uh, Alex, I know you know. Jack John, do you know what the official nomenclature for the spikes on a Stegosaurus's tail is? I think I've known it before, but I completely forget right now. It's called a Thagomizer. Yes. And the reason it is called a Thagomizer was because of a far side joke. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, Gary Larson loved to name his cavemen Thag, and there was the this far side comic where they're at a uh, big conference of paleontologists, and one's pointing out this uh, thing on the tail that says, we call this the Thagomizer after the late Thag Simmons. <laughs> Just a really stupid throwaway joke, <laughs> and the scientific community was like, all right, well, that's what that is now. We thought that was funny, so it's in the record now. The, the love... grip that that Farside used to have on the on society, I just I know the '80s sucked in most respects, but I do kind of wish I could have lived through that part of it. I I wish that were the case now. Yeah, I also love that. Like back when like things were still getting discovered, all it took was the nerd who discovered it to have a really specific fandom. Like the number of shit that's named after Pokemon, it, like in like jeans and shit like it's just like yeah the dude yeah. Who found out this really like pikachu so it's like the pikachu is home or some shit like <laughs> oh, that's all it fucking took you scientists easily impressed people <laughs> mm -hmm. all right well that was certainly a, a fun walk down uh down dinosaur lane um so that leaves us with uh one more much less fun topic uh <laughs> to which we turn to me, um, and I will point out that we're recording this on June 14th, which just so happens to be Flag Day. Maybe the most irrelevant American holiday. Um, yeah. It took me until um, 9 p.m. my time to realize today is Flag Day. So, yeah, no. Literally, uh, national, literally national Chicken and Waffles Day means more to me than Flag mm -hmm. Day. Yeah, so a real holiday uh, involves at least one of three things. One, you get the day off work. Two, you get treats. Three, you get drunk. Or some combination of those things. Um, as I said, even contrived obscure holidays like National Donut Day or, or Chicken and Waffles Day, like you just said, Cody, sometimes those mean that like restaurants and shops will have specials on whatever it is. Or like the various... Pet days mean that you see a lot of cute pics of, of uh, animals on social media. Mm -hmm. So at least you get something out of that. Yeah, Flag like, Day is just there. Nobody like, gives a yeah. shit about Flag Day. <laughs> I didn't have a red, white, and blue beer at a pub tonight. Like It's, it's not real. With that said, um, I actually do have a festive topic, so to speak, for Flag Day. <laughs> and uh, yeah, fittingly, it's not super fun either. Um, I'm talking about... <laughs> Francis Bellamy and the creation of the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, the Pledge is perhaps the number one prime example of something in American life that we accept as normal as kids, but when we get older and start to view things with some objectivity, we realize that it is totally bizarre. 
yeah it's the thing it's where if it's you picture really it fucking different weird lang- it's the thing where if you picture it in a different language it's really really scary mm-hmm. yeah this is hitler youth type shit cody oh, i would no. like you to hold that thought. oh god damn it we've gone so long um <laughs> believe it or not the story mm. of the creation of the pledge is maybe even weirder and more frustrating than you would expect. Um, So let's start with Francis Bellamy himself. Francis was born in 1855 in western New York. His father was a Baptist minister, and his whole family was deeply religious. Francis himself uh, studied to become a minister and eventually began preaching in Boston. Francis's specific ideas were very much influenced by uh, a Protestant movement from the 19th century called the Second Great Awakening. Uh, the two defining features of the Second Great Awakening were traveling revivals and advocacy for social causes. Like what they, what I, I think, at least on the first part, traveling revivals, that's like the, sh- the things that they call in True Detective Season 1, like that's old time religion, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, but this all begat the Third Great Awakening in the latter half of the 18th or the 19th century um, at the time that Francis Bellamy was preaching. Specifically, Francis himself was a Christian socialist. Um, His whole point was that, you know, this Jesus fellow had a lot to say about blessed be the poor, wealthy people are inherently immoral, etc., etc. So if we're going to follow his teachings, there should be equitable distribution of resources. And like, you know, as I've made very clear on this show on more than one occasion, I'm not a religious person. I'm not a Christian. But if I was, that would be correct. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. there's some other problematic points of view in the Bible, but that one's pretty cut and dry. They make that yeah. one pretty clear. Like, like, don't shun poor people or sex workers or those with less than you. Seems like a pretty like reasonable take on life. Yeah. Also, if you have a if you've got a bunch of shit, and somebody next door has nothing, and they're not a complete monster, give them some of your shit. <laughs> yeah, you should give them something. Um, unfortunately, my view there, uh, was not shared by the communities to which he was actually preaching to at the time. Uh, socialism was still pretty undeveloped and not well known in those times. So his going up there and preaching about how capitalism is evil and how Jesus was a socialist rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And he was, um, run out of Boston for it. Well, I'm glad that you can get away with that now. I I would say that I love the idea of capitalist Jesus, but that's basically what Jesus is today for a lot of people. I was going to say, that's just Joel Osteen. <laughs> Jesus wants me to have a bigger yacht, so please give more tithe this month. He moved to Florida and supposedly quit going to church altogether because of the hideous racism he witnessed there. Which, two things. One, it is Florida, so I do believe that. Um, yeah. I also love that a man from Boston was like, all right, now this is too racist. <laughs> so, well, that all sounds good. Um, I want you to, to put a pin in that. Um, a running theme in this segment is going to be cruel irony. <laughs> um, Francis making that stand will become cruelly ironic when you find out some of the other things that he believes. Mm. So other radical ideas he championed uh, were the proliferation of public education and, interestingly, the separation of church and state. Which, again, put a pin in that for future cruel irony purposes. Fucking A. (laughs) Yeah. 
All that sounds like Francis Bellamy was a pretty terrific guy, right? <laughs> well, time for the other shoe. Well, it's here's a guy. <laughs> Francis's principled anti-racism stance was cruelly ironic, considering that Francis himself was a massive racist. <laughs> <laughs> then why? Why huh. then? At this time, you could openly be a massive racist. Why are you pretending you have a problem with this? He outlined his specific racist beliefs, and it's like... I, I don't know. I guess he thought this was less racist than most people. He hedges a bit. Um, that's really the only difference. Is, is he the kind of racist where he's like, all right, whites are at the top, and then there's like a pyramid of like second tier, third tier, and fourth tier like races? Is he like that kind of racist? You're in the ballpark. Here, oh, so fuck, here's I don't his, want to be in the ballpark. Here's his exact quote. Um, Bellamy said that a democracy like ours cannot afford to throw itself open to the world where every man is a lawmaker, every dull-witted or fanatical immigrant admitted to our citizenship is a bane to the commonwealth. Bellamy then went on to add, where all classes of society merge insensibly into one another, every alien immigrant of inferior race may bring corruption to the stock. There are races more or less akin to our own, who we may emit freely and get nothing but advantage by the infusion of their wholesome blood. But there are other races, which we cannot assimilate without lowering our racial standard, which should be as sacred to us as the sanctity of our homes. Fuck. So that is the, Ooh. those are the words yes. of the man who quit the pulpit because of how racist everybody in Florida was. I, I was with him when he said that stupid people shouldn't have a voice, and then he completely fucking lost me with everything else. So... Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a weird... You see this every once in a while, though, but it, it is a weird thing to see when you see a racist telling other racists that they're being racist wrong. Yeah. I'm not a racist. I think Asians are completely fine. Now everybody say, else. I, I don't get me started. wondering who he qualifies like an admissible race. Like, is it Asians? He was mad was at people Mexicans? mistreating the Irish, I guess. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing that, that's like, it. I'm guessing Irish, it's white people. Honestly, yeah, it's 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 white Irish, yeah. Yeah, so he never fully elaborates, but some of the other stuff we're about to about to discuss kind of enlightens. That was probably it. Like Irish and a couple other He's like um, Irish people are right as European. Irish people are cool. Italians? I'm not sure yet. Hold that one too. Oh, fuck uh, Ital me. Italians are going, going to become an important character in this story. God damn it. Um, oh, we so, got a spicy meatball this week. Mama um, So that, that's what passed for progressive back in the 19th century. Um, as hinted by that quote and the other stuff that we, we just talked about, immigration was a hot topic in America in the late 19th century. Uh, this was a time when a lot of immigrants were coming to America from all across Europe some of which were not especially well accepted by the rest of American society, uh, namely, as we mentioned, Irish and Italians, just two examples. <laughs> um, directly related to this was a push for more American, American patriotism, i.e. celebrating your nation and staying loyal to it. Within this context, there, there's two ways to look at patriotism. You can make a positive framing that it's a channel by which immigrants can conditionally assimilate into American society rather than necessarily be excluded from it. The problem with that is just that exact. It's that it is conditional. 
It yeah. sets a standard that immigrants yeah. have to shed themselves of all other identity. Yeah. And on the flip side, it creates an embedded hostility to all things that don't fit within a defined nationalist idea. It, it's, it's still bad. Hey, it's just a different kind of bad. Hey, come to my country and I'll accept you if you leave your weird cooking and scary dancing and songs way the fuck where you came from. <laughs> I told you to leave oh, the Irish alone. I'll have I'll have no shenanigans and 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 patty dancing here. Fuck you. Um, with respect to Italians specifically, uh, let's talk briefly about one of our other uncomfortable American traditions: Columbus Day. Mm. Um, mm. we all know. I, I think Italian discrimination. We all <laughs> we all know. I think what the issues really were there with, with uh, uh, Christopher Columbus. Uh, it's been much discussed in the last several years, so we, d we don't even... You know, the genocide and all that. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. The all um, of it. The first Columbus Day celebration took place on uh, um, October 12th, 1792, the 300th anniversary of Columbus's landing. Um, that celebration was not a holiday, but it was uh, a celebration held by the Columbian Order of New York, better known as Tammany Hall. Uh, the in infamous uh, New York oh, political God, machine, God. which if you've seen the gangs of New York, then you, 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 you probably have a little bit of insight into this. The wonderful Jim Broadbent doing a, a great turn as uh, Boss Tweed and that flick. Yeah. So Tammany Hall invented Columbus Day. Um, but for a long time, it was kind of a localized holiday, and many Italians... Like, we joke about this now, but many Italians long, long ago did use it as a means to celebrate their heritage rather than uh, uh, praising Christopher Columbus himself. A um, hundred years later, in 1892, we had the 400th anniversary of Columbus's landing. Um, to commemorate this, we had what was called the World's Columbian Exposition. Um, it was an event that took place in Chicago and was part of that era's trend of world fairs. Not long before this, in 1891, we had a particularly ugly incident in New Orleans when uh, several Italian-Americans were acquitted at trial for charges of murdering a police chief. An angry mob formed, claiming the jury was fixed, and a riot broke out. In the end, 11 Italian-Americans were publicly lynched, the largest mass lynching in American history to this day. Holy shit. A surprisingly impact. We don't hear about this, but it's a surprisingly impactful moment in American history for a bunch of reasons. Um, go ahead, Jack John. Uh, it, it, it's surprising in really sad ways that I'm surprised it's not a larger number of people somewhere else in history, mm -hmm. uh, which says a lot about my view of this country overall. Well, I, I said mean, because, but also a, 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 <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, but also like a, a devastating thing that I've actually never heard about. So. Also, shout out to the, the public school system. Um, yeah, uh, this was part of like a building anti-Italian immigrant sentiment. And like, because it's America, that did not cause people to rethink. Um, it just it just made uh, the tensions even worse. And in fact, like public public awareness of what we call the mafia, like that term entered the public consciousness after this incident. Um. But more to the point, this threw gasoline on the already fiery tensions uh, with Italian immigrants and strained diplomatic relationships between America and Italy. It was that bad. They were basically cutting us off entirely. 
For the world's Columbian expedition, President Benjamin Harrison declared Columbus Day to be a one-time national celebration as a way to smooth things over with, with, with Italy. <laughs> On the flip side, there was a concerted effort by various entities to use the event to push patriotism. Like, you know, there, there's a lot of cynicism in this story. Some of these people really did seem to think that that was what was going to fix things. Like promoting loyalty <laughs> to the American identity was going to solve the tensions between between immigrants and people who had been here longer. That's what they thought. Can you imagine? I I love I that can, not, much has, not much has changed in the last three to four hundred years. That they really don't. What we what we thought would change was us doing the bare minimum and just hoping that it would. Yeah, forgive us. Come on. Yeah, Americans I don't know if that even qualifies as bare minimum. <laughs> Americans at their core have been the exact same people that we have been since the country was founded. Yes. Um, so getting back to Francis Bellamy. After leaving the church, Francis was hired on at a children's magazine called Youth's Companion. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. Which I get the sense is like highlights for dorks. It, um, it, it's yeah. the Boy Scouts boy's life, but more universal. It was very much in that vein. It was very Boy Scouty, yeah. For a few years already, um, Youth Companion had been campaigning to sell American flags to public schools. The purpose of this campaign blatantly was to make money. By 1892, they'd sold flags to roughly 26,000 schools already, but they hit a bit of a lull. Francis' colleague John Upham has the idea to use the upcoming... Uh, uh, World Columbian Expedition to boost the campaign. As part of this, he decided to push the idea that not only should schools have flags, but making the children recite a special oath to the flag would be a great way to spread patriotism. Mm. Francis Bellamy was tasked yeah. with actually writing, writing this pledge. That's not at all a psychotic thing to make children do. It, it's one of those really gross father-daughter purity dances, but for the country. Mm. He recalled a This is proposal. not at all like something you'd see in a cult. <laughs> he recalled a proposed pledge he'd read a few years back by a Civil War veteran named Captain George T. Balch <laughs> that went as follows. No. We give our heads and hearts to God and our country. One country, one language, one flag. Francis kind of liked the format of Balch's pledge, but as to the specific wording, he found it, quote, juvenile and lacking in dignity. <laughs> pretty biting from the Fair guy enough. who came up with the Pledge of Allegiance yeah okay. he's like hey this needs to be like 10 lines longer and a lot weirder yeah he liked the length of it but he, he wanted to clean it up and also specifically he didn't want to mention the part about God because even though he was a minister as we discussed he was staunchly in favor of the separation of church and state so he wouldn't dare do something like that so he wrote his own version, uh, which went as follows. Let me just uh, let me just pull it up here. It went as follows. I pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands, one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. So mostly the same pledge we know uh, with a couple key differences, which we'll get to later. The pledge was published in the September edition of Youth's Companion, 
And then Francis successfully lobbied educators to implement the pledge as a nationwide school program on the heels of the National Columbus Day celebration. Youth Companion made a fortune off of this. So, first thing. We all grew up reciting the pledge with our hand on our heart. But in the original version, people did something different. So this is obviously an audio-only medium. Um, so I'm going to reenact. I know where this you, is you, going. You two have very tell. concerned looks. Uh, I'm, going on, to, I'm just getting ready on, to take a picture of you doing this. Based on the table, the untapped. I, I, must, I must insist. Um, so this is an audio-only medium. I am going to reenact what people did. And I would like you two to describe. All right. So here, here <laughs> it went. It's exactly what you think it is. Yeah. What what it's, would you um... how would you describe the the uh the signal that I just did? Well, it, it's almost as though they were waving to the flag, but their their hands didn't move. It's a very rigid uh rigid stance. It's you know, just an arm raised upward at the shoulder. Um yeah, very curious. I it, it seems familiar. Look, it... I, I I get the understand like I get where it comes from. He's from New York. He was hiling a taxi. So for those who don't know, um, who didn't so, somehow didn't divide, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, this is this was known as the Bellamy salute, and mm. is um, a salute that we now associate with Nazi Germany because it is the exact same one that you're thinking of. Um, so another cruel irony. Recall that this is all part of a cynical marketing ploy playing off very real tensions between America and Italy. So time for a, a brief little uh, uh, power history lesson. The Bellamy salute was used in American stage productions of Ben-Hur, then in the 1907 silent film version of Ben-Hur. The 1907 Ben-Hur influenced early Italian filmmakers, and the Bellamy salute was seen in Italian silent films as well. Those films, especially 1914's Cabiria, greatly influenced Italian fascists who adopted the salute as their own, thereby playing a role in the decimation of Italy by fascist rule in the years that follows. Then, more famously, their allies, the Nazi Party of Germany, adopted the salute and their attempted global conquest started World War II, which America entered after the Nazis' Japanese allies bombed Pearl Harbor, and at which point, unsurprisingly, the Bellamy salute was retired, and we changed to the more familiar <laughs> hand-over-the-heart gesture. So we gave them the, the Nazi salute. I think we just said, yeah. you can have it. I think yeah. you pretty much tarnished it at this when, point. There's when, not really any, any reclaiming that one. When you said that, like, this inspired like Italian filmmakers, which then and I, my mind immediately just started yelling, "No!" Yeah. So <laughs> I I saw where that snowball was going. So there was some the Bellamy salute. I'm sure was influenced a bit by some old like Roman salutes. Um, but yes, it is true that the Bellamy salute indirectly did influence the Nazi salute. So that's not a coincidence. That is where they got it from. They got it from Italian fascists who got it from us. Yeah. That is the most, like, on-the-nose butterfly effect that you could possibly imagine from this. As I said, cruel irony. Um, despite the now extremely regrettable salute, uh, the pledge became a mainstay in American schools. The wording has seen two main changes over time. Exactly 100 years ago from today, we had the National Flag Conference 
the formalized procedures for treatment and handling of the flag and for rituals such as the pledge. Like, <laughs> and let me just say, the National Flag Conference, can you imagine a convention with less fucking going on? Like, this is the polar opposite end of, of the cool geologists and archaeologists. Like, nobody is yeah, getting just, laid in this thing. No, just the biggest collection of wet blankets and sad sacks I can possibly imagine. You know what? I'm, I'm going the exact uh, opposite. This is like the Olympic Village times 100. Like, there's, like, the entire, like, conference is fucking. <laughs> it's one big orgy. Um <laughs> Also, I, I, I don't know this explicitly, but given that it was 1923, wanting to formalize these flag procedures, I suspect I suspect the fact that this was going on during the, the first Red Scare is not a coincidence, because um, that's, that's what influenced pretty much everything we did around that time. Uh, but more on that in a bit. At this conference, it was decided that the words, My Flag would be changed to the flag of the United States of America. The reason for this was to keep immigrants from confusing what, what flag their loyalties lie with. So there you go. Sure, if the um, entire all other context just doesn't fucking huh. exist. Um, it's unclear how Francis Bellamy felt about it, although uh, he had another quote about the pledge. Um... He viewed his pledge as a, quote, inoculation that would protect immigrants and native-born but insufficiently patriotic Americans from the virus of radicalism and subversion. Total dick. He did this to sell magazines. Um, yeah, everyone who doesn't think the country they grew up in is better than this one is susceptible to ra uh, radicalization. That's, that makes a whole hell of a lot of sense. There, there is some... There's some accidental truth in this because, like, something that I've thought about more as as I've gotten to adulthood, like, the the idea that this occurred to me a little bit as a kid, but I kind of put it out of my mind because, like, these are not kid problems. But the idea that the country that you're born in just so happens to be the best one on the face of the earth, and you are very confident in that. That is crazy. <laughs> um, like, by what metric can you even measure what the best country is? Like, I don't know what the best country is because I think it's a completely stupid premise. And, I mean, that literally, to people who don't see how that's tied to racism, it is literally the exact same line of reasoning. Well, and There yeah, is a race that is superior and it just happens to be me. And I was going to say that the the accidental truth in in Bellamy's quote about inoculation is that once you start to have that thought that I just lined out that like maybe all this stuff that's drilled into our head about you know USA being number one or, or just that that entire framework is completely pointless. You kind of some other things kind of start to unravel, namely like you know most war <laughs> conquest imperialism, things like that, they start to make a lot less sense. So that's really the kind of thing that, that people wanted to inoculate from. Um, you know, in any event, that is the version of the pledge that uh, existed when Francis Bellamy died in 1931. But let's skip ahead to uh, 1948, when at a meeting of the Illinois Society of the Sons of the American Revolution, yet another creepy nationalist institution, um, 
a lawyer named Louis Bowman led a recital of the pledge that inserted two extra words, under God. Bowman claimed that he got that wording from Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, although um, whether or not Lincoln actually said that is disputed. More realistically, Louis Bowman added this because he's a weird kook. I can't imagine people uh, inserting their own religion into historical context to suit their own needs being a, a thing that somebody would do in a higher seat of power. That doesn't sound real. Never. Religion is never wielded cynically. <laughs> no. Um, Weaponized? Never. The, the, the bigger context here was that America was in the throes of the Cold War. And religion was something the American establishment wielded as a contrast to the atheism of communist nations. Um, in 1951, the Knights of Columbus also began... Yeah, we're, this is really like a who's who of, of creepy institutions. Um, Bad people, yeah. In 1951, the Knights of Columbus also began using Under God in recitals of the Pledge, and they became so adamant about it that they also started lobbying Congress to make that official. Several unsuccessful attempts were made to do so, um, and then finally, in 1954... After being moved by a sermon delivered by a staunch proponent of that cause uh, named Minister George McPherson Doherty, President Eisenhower influenced a successful passage of a bill adding under God to the pledge on this date. This date, exactly 69 years ago. I shit you not. <laughs> I, nice. I, I want to say nice, but everything else about it is not very nice. Yeah, this is our most serendipitous topic ever, and yet we still can't have much fun with it. This goes to show you how much all these people suck. Um, Guys, I don't think I want to do a history podcast anymore. I'm very sad. Francis Bellamy, a proud socialist and firm believer in the separation of church and state, must have been spinning in his grave. But here's the thing, motherfucker. You really should have seen this coming. Like, your, your, cynical, your cynical ploy here to shove patriotism down our throats later becoming a playground for even more cynical nationalists to push agendas that you would vehemently oppose is not an unforeseen consequence, okay? Your idea sucked, and its stated reasoning was tenuous to begin with. I, I think it can be like easily said, you can't be a little racist. You're either all the way racist or you're not, and he tried to be a little racist and it backfired. Yeah. Yeah, r yeah. racism is really an either-or. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You are or you aren't. It's like being dead. Um, <laughs> since then, uh, courts have held pretty consistently that kids can't be punished for refusing to recite the pledge, but there's a social pressure involved. I, I am surprised Cody and I... did. I was trying to remember, did we do the pledge in high school? I know we did in elementary. I, I think that there were... I think there was... Maybe one teacher who did the pledge in high school, but I don't think I ever had them first hour. No, so I, don't, I don't think I, I don't ever had ever to do the it. pledge in high school. Because I was going to no. say that, like, it, otherwise I was shocked that you or I never sat out the pledge, because that is absolutely something that we would have done. Yeah. Uh, I know that I had the pledge in high school over the PA of the entire school. So, yeah, it, it, it still happened. See, our high school didn't have a working PA, so... <laughs> that was the thing, yeah. <laughs> There's just somebody in the cafeteria yelling really loudly, and all the teachers have to have their doors open. I mean, we did well, have we also, this, like, like, phone, phone intercom, intercom system. system. Yeah, we didn't have a cafeteria. Well, I, guess you, 
God damn it. We did have, like, a phone intercom system that I guess you could have used to roughly the same effect, but no one ever did. Um, however, they've also, courts have also declined to hold that the pledge violates the separation of church and state or anyone's First Amendment freedom or religion. Whether it actually does is probably a matter of longer discussion for another day. But in the meantime, I'll make a simpler point. We shouldn't have a Pledge of Allegiance because it's stupid, <laughs> it's pointless, and the whole idea came from a random kook trying to sell children's magazines. So, this exact thing... So, a couple years ago, when Colin Kaepernick first hit the news for kneeling during the National Anthem before football games, and everyone was in this big debate... Now, I... Not having been a Kaepernick fan before, seeing as I was a Rams fan, um, I immediately was like, yeah, this guy's awesome. He's doing it. But everyone got so fucking upset. And that got me to thinking, the fact that we do that at all is ridiculous. Why are you playing the national anthem before a football? Those two things have nothing to do with each other. Nothing. Nothing at all. Absolutely zero connection between those two things. Why do we do it? And and more importantly, why do you piss yourself with rage when somebody doesn't react the way you want to? Yeah, it, you're fucking it weird. Back. You're a bunch it of fucking back. weirdos. Knock it off. It goes back to what I said at the beginning. Like the fact that we play the national anthem at every sporting event at any level, like probably like middle school and up. Uh, if this was in any other language in any other country, the United States would be scared of it. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not just saying that because as a sportscaster, at certain times of the year, the national anthem is the bane of my existence. Because it makes it very difficult to do a pregame show when you don't have like equipment that is capable of carrying that. So you have to just jump the fuck out of whatever you're in and go to a break as soon as that starts happening? As, as a quick aside, I know I mentioned I um, bowled earlier. Uh, I was in a traveling bowling league, and we would do the Star Spangled Banner before every, um, every like, tournament. Uh, we went to uh, one bowling alley who had like really shit everything, and they didn't have the Star Spangled Banner that everyone always played. So a kid with his iPhone played the Jimi Hendrix Star Spangled Banner. Hell like, yeah. I was going to say, that's, 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 I was gonna literally just thinking, that's the one caveat, which is yeah. that the, the Hendrix Star Spangled Banner at Woodstock, I, just, I have the vinyl of the Woodstock soundtrack. Yeah. I just listened to that the other day. It's so fucking cool. Yeah. The, well, the I mean, person who had the Star there's Spangled nothing Banner wrong. the entire... There's nothing wrong necessarily with having a national anthem. He still could have played it. It, it, just, it just shouldn't be mandatory, is all. Yeah, it it doesn't need to happen at an eighth grade basketball game. You can you can just play twenty minutes of shitty basketball and go no, home. Nothing is gained out of that. So yeah, it, it, if anybody ever wants to lecture you about the sanctity of the Pledge of Allegiance, just tell them this story: that the literal genesis of the Pledge of Allegiance was a racist socialist of all things. Um, yeah, that's what they'll be mad about. <laughs> yeah, there's something here to piss off everybody. A racist socialist coming up with a, a cynical marketing ploy to sell children's magazines off the back of, of the worst 
public lynching in the history of the United States. Uh, That's the genesis of the Pledge yeah. of Allegiance. And dare I say, there is nothing more American than that little tidbit right there. You got you got marketing, you have racism, you have death. It's got it all. Yeah. My favorite as kind long, of person. It, it, the as long as there's a cheeseburger and a drunk guy at some point in there, you got you got all your bases covered. And maybe some baseball. Yeah. The the best kind of person, the racist socialist capitalist, uh profiteering off of all of this. <laughs> So uh, that's the the uh, very frustrating story of Francis Bellamy, uh, the creator of their Pledge of Allegiance. And uh, my big question for the two of you, what's a flag that you like better than the flag of the United States? I will say genuinely, so, if you if the flag of the United States is actually your favorite, you are free to say so. I suspect that's not the case, but you are free to say so. Yeah, there's a lot of negative uh, association with that with me. But um, have either of you ever seen the flag of Antarctica? Or did you know that such a thing existed? I, did I don't think I have. It's literally just a blue field with Antarctica, a white Antarctica in the middle of it. Because Antarctica has no real population. It has no uh, government at all. So, but at some point they decided we need a flag. And they're just like, what do we put on the flag of Antarctica? There's nothing here. And they're just like, put Antarctica on the flag. That is the most on-brand thing I can think of. Like, it's it's just, hey, we're a big white continent. Here it is. Don't like it? Hey, Fuck you. It, we don't like it either. It's here. <laughs> so that's uh, my pick. For me, for me, I have two answers. I have a real answer, and, and here's a guy answer that's funny. For me, I have a flag in my office uh, from the band Seaway. This is Everything is Cool Man. Uh-huh. Uh, and when I'm really stressed, I just look at the flag. And probably go walk and yell a lot. But the flag is just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to listen to some pop punk and come down for a little bit. And we, uh, you and I both have weed legal in your state, dude. I fucking wish, man. We, we, uh, both have the, uh, uh, hoodie with that, with that logo on it as well. Yeah. Um, but my, my joke here is the guy answer. Uh, I'm going to take the flag from the show community, uh, the Greendale College flag, uh, the E Pluribus Anus flag. <laughs> the flag that's literally just an anus. I'm, I'm going to look this up because I haven't seen Community. Um, Greendale. Flag. Oh boy, that sure is. It is. It that's is an stuff. anus. <laughs> um. So for me, I'm going to uh, I'm going to hype up our own St. Louis flag. I think we got a great flag here. Um, it is pretty dope. You know, I'm just a sucker for, you know, anything involving a fleur de Um, you know, red, which is a good flag color. It incorporates, you know, some other color incorporates dark blue, it incorporates yellow. Um and it's got the uh, you know, the little wavy lines, which I believe are meant to signify the three rivers that converge um at St. Louis. So I like that one a lot. I will say though, as much as I as I, I just talk shit. Uh, about America and our flag. The American flag is not my least favorite flag. Um, you know what my least favorite flag is? What's that? My least favorite flag is easily uh, the Saturdays are for the boys flag, or as I like to call <laughs> it, the, the date rape flag. Um, so. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm so sad that bros have ruined Pat McAfee for me. 
Um, my punter is forever tarnished by dude bros. Yeah, by yeah, by barstool sports fans. Uh, yeah, him and PFT commenter. Just why couldn't they have been picked up by anybody else? Well, that is a that was a fun uh, that was a less fun. We had a fun walk down dinosaur lane and a less fun walk down flag lane. So, mm-hmm. um, with that, that brings us to a conclusion of this episode of Here's a Guy. So, um, let's wrap things up like we always do. We'll start by going around the horn and hawking our shit. Cody, where can the people find you? You can find me every week right here on Here's a Guy on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. You can uh, also find me on Twitter. I'm at SonOfGravy42069. And don't forget to check out our official uh, Here's a Guy Instagram page. It's at Here's a Guy Pod. Sounds good. Jack John, where can the people find you? Uh, people can find me on my Twitch channel, Papa Jack John, where I play uh, very silly games uh, and have a lot of fun doing that every Sunday. Uh, and I'll reiterate, uh, follow the Instagram account because uh, I'm going to be posting some weird fucking mail that I'm getting soon, and I'm terrified to uh, to open it, but I'm very excited at the same time. Right on. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Turpin for Prez. That's Turpin, the number four P-R-E-Z. Uh, follow the podcast account as well. It's at Here's a Guy Pod. And we have a mailbox. It's here's a mailbox at gmail.com. Um, Send us your responses to either of the two extremely silly prompts I mentioned earlier or anything else. Any comments, suggestion, feedback, uh, threats. It is often threats. Uh, and if we like it enough, we will read it on the air. So, uh, oh boy, that uh, I believe brings us to the close of quite the roller coaster edition of Here's a Guy. Um, <laughs> so, to, to put a bow on this thing, uh, Cody, do you have a tagline for us? I do. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you all for being here. Hope to have you back again with us next week. Cody, hit us with that tagline, please. I pledge allegiance to here's a guy and its constant state of hysteria and to the stupidity for which it stands. One podcast inconceivable with gibberish and bad puns for all. (laughs) Give me $5. Hallelujah. Holy shit. Where's the Tylenol?